Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 115. Uh, there's a number of things we need to get to. Uh, first off, thank you for bearing with me last week when there was no episode. I was in Chicago and had a great time. I miss that city very, very much. But uh, we've got things to get to. We need to continue uh, Delving further and further into Halloween times, I want to, by the way, I also want to say uh, a quick apology. There is some uh, yard work going on outside my house. Uh, We're trying to set this up so that you don't hear it, or at least it's kept to a minimum. But occasionally you might hear like a leaf blower or something like that. So we apologize uh, in advance. More than anything, uh, I will be distracted by it because uh, that's who I am. Um... So, but before I bring in my co-host, uh, all right, here we go. This episode is brought to you by To Be a Man, A Christian's Guide to Being a Gentleman. Recent articles include discussions about table manners, how to have an awesome first date, and Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Uh, the website is not just for men, though. Women are welcome to contribute to the conversation about biblical manhood. Uh, to read these articles and many more, just click on the ad at morethanonelesson.com. So that is a website run by uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine named Joe Zaragoza, and he's uh, this is a passion of his, uh, biblical manhood, as it is for me. And so thank you very much to Joe for sponsoring this episode and the next couple as well. So... Uh, we will get into the episode, but first I need to welcome in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hey. Did I actually take you by surprise? No. Okay. All right. That was uh, well sold then. Hmm. It looked like you were just looking at your phone and could not have been bothered. Best actor state of Missouri. Don't you remember when have you I been, won that award? Have you been watching Persona <laughs> and, and you're mixing up you and me? Oh, speaking of which, um, so I think I mentioned this before. I, I, I think I mentioned it in regards to uh, Josh being on the show. But um, but yeah, uh, Jim Rohner, who is one of our occasional uh, contributors, he has started a new podcast called I Do Movies Badly. And so far, both Josh and myself have been on the show, and you can hear about Jim's response to movies that we recommend he watch. And his series on Ingmar Bergman has specifically been very interesting. He's been very open and honest about his reaction to those films uh, in a way that, frankly, is like listening to it. I really felt for him because I often, as I've said on here, I often feel like a fraud if I haven't seen movies or if I don't have the right response to a certain movie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he really steered right into it. And I admire that a great deal. I do not know what the next series is going to be about, but I'm looking forward to it. I really admire what Jim is doing. So, okay, here we go. This episode 
we are talking about Adam Wingard's The Guest. Are we? Now, if you have, ne- well, theoretically. Oh. Um, now, if you've not heard of the film, it's understandable. Um, it, it did not get a super wide release, although it is as the month goes on, I think, to capitalize on uh, October and just nationwide Halloween times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this little thriller is showing up in more cities and so you have more opportunities to see it and if it does come to your city i would say uh take the time to go see it it's a movie that i really like uh it is currently fairly high up in my top 10 for the year and um yeah and there are some things in there that i felt like we could talk about on this show which is what we are going to do right now a real quick summary this is from the imdb page i wish i could take credit for this summary it's so efficient just take credit for it all right i wrote it (laughs) um i'm saying it and thus it's like i wrote it yeah uh a soldier introduces himself to the peterson family claiming to be a friend of their son who died in action after the young man is welcomed into their home a series of accidental deaths seem to be connected to his presence okay so that's very vague um i want to we should specify too that that could be a little bit confusing there it says a friend of their son who died in action he's not pretending to be someone who died Right. Yes. The son. The son died. Definitely died, yeah. and he's uh, uh, ostensibly he's saying, a friend of that son. Yeah. He's saying I served with him uh, overseas, and he wanted me to come here and tell you the following things. Uh, I will say this: uh, I'm going to try and stay vague. It's going to be rough. Um, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> but now that we're going into the plot summary, I'm like, oh, there's some things we shouldn't go into yeah without getting without getting specific i think I, I think it is possible to to talk about this and talk about it thematically um but yeah it's it's not a film that people can go and see uh, at, pr- very readily and so i want to try and keep this as vague as possible because mm-hmm. i don't want to give things away yeah uh so yeah i'll i'll throw it real quick um so it was uh, directed by Adam Wingard and written by Simon Barrett. They are the two responsible for a movie last year called Your Next, which is a horror movie, a horror thriller slash kind of comedy at times <laughs> uh, that I really liked and responded to. And between that and this, uh, I'm very excited to see where they go next. Yeah, There is – okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll lead with this. Both movies um, are kind of a throwback to a certain type of film mm-hmm. and in some cases a certain era of that type of film uh your next is i mean there are a lot of home invasion movies happening right now but it's a in many ways it's almost a throwback to like the an agatha christie novel kind of the especially the house that they're yeah. in seems like it's one of those things where the lights all go out and come back on and someone's exactly. dead does that actually happen in the movie i don't think that happens but it's uh but the lights do go off yeah uh, but it's not one of those things that you know when when it, they come back on somebody is uh, skewered with a sword <laughs> um but uh but yeah it takes place in a remote upscale house with this family and they die one by one and you never know who's the killer and so so while it is definitely a horror it does have elements of a thriller and, and a whodunit as well mm-hmm, yeah uh the guest feels very much like uh, a byproduct of the 80s movies like the stepfather and the hitcher uh yeah. it is not and frankly at the risk of being a little too spoilery uh more than a little bit of the terminator in there as well <laughs> <laughs> so um hmm. So, uh, 
and just the choice of music and just the pacing of it, it does feel very much like a 1980s thriller. It almost sounds like a Tangerine Dream soundtrack. Doesn't it, it, a little it does, bit? yes. Uh, and it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful soundtrack. It I is recommend. a cool soundtrack. And they're all, they're all newer artists, right? Yeah. So yeah. you listen to it and you think, like, these must be bands from the 80s that I never knew of. That's what I, the whole yeah. time I kept thinking, like, maybe this is so-and-so, or maybe this is so-and-so. No, it's all new stuff, all artists that I hadn't even heard of. And you know what's interesting is... You know, we're now getting to a point where, you know, you and I are in our 30s now. Speak for yourself. Okay. Uh, I am in my 30s, and you are just getting younger. Every day. You did shave your facial hair, and you do look younger now. I'm Benjamin Buttoning. I never saw that film, did you? No. Yeah. Anyway, so... uh, (laughs) So I feel like movies and genres that happened now, now people our age are making movies. Hmm. And so they will go, you know, you go back to the stuff that you were raised with. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like you're running, you run across a lot in the last probably five to six years, you've run across a fair amount of movies that feel like, uh, either directly like the use of music, um, or in the concept they feel like they were from the 1980s i'm, I'm thinking yeah. of drive for example yeah, which definitely. felt a lot like michael mann's thief in yeah. a number of ways speaking I'm of thinking, tangerine dream exactly yeah <laughs> um and i uh super eight very much feels mm-hmm. like a, an 80s spielberg film and you know these movies are I'll, nicholas winning reffin is not uh, not necessarily a young guy but i feel like he's in his 30s right yeah i would say so so you know you have filmmakers making movies that are a reference to the movies that inspire, maybe inspire them to be filmmakers in the first mm-hmm. place, yeah. which is very interesting. And so I do find myself wondering uh, how many people will appreciate the guest on every level that it is meant to be appreciated. Yeah, I could see younger audiences not quite yeah. getting it. I think um, that – so the question then is if you don't get it on that level – can you still like it? Can you st- is it still effective? And with the guest, I think I think yes. so. Yeah. Um, certainly, in the critic screening where I saw it, there were there were some guys that made it very clear that they get it uh, by <laughs> laughing very obnoxiously. I found myself wondering what what outlet do you write for because uh, they're probably not thrilled with how you're behaving right now. It was very <laughs> frustrating. Um, but yeah, but nonetheless, I do think, and and I'm not somebody that was necessarily raised with this kind of '80s film. Um, yeah, I watched some slasher movies, and while this does have an element of that, it is it is a very specific subgenre of um, thriller more than horror. Yeah, it's really not. It's really not a horror movie. I don't yeah. think there's kind of. I don't know. There's, there's weird connections to horror movies. I think mm-hmm. it really has a like. I I think it's important that the film is taking place around Halloween. Yeah, and there's a lot of things in the field that remind me of the movie Halloween. Oh yeah. Um, I, I at points I can't quite put my finger on what exactly that is, but it but it does have a very Halloween feel without yeah. being a horror movie. Yeah, and it uh, so. I will say that for maybe sensitive listeners, there is some violence in the film. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if it's particularly... I, I tend to make a distinction between violence and gore. 
Yeah, I don't think there's very much gore, if any, in yeah. this. Your Next had a lot of gore. Yes, Your Next is more of a gore movie, and that I would call more a horror movie, yeah. even though that's... Uh, home Invasion is always kind of on that line between horror yeah. and thriller, yeah. um, so I think Your Next does both, but this one I think is really a thriller. Yeah, for me, I know it sounds, and, and I know there are people that think very much the opposite. I think everybody has a different definition of what is scariest to them. And you and I have had this conversation ourselves, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you are frightened by like spiritual or, or supernatural horror, mm-hmm. whereas I tend to be frightened by not merely the physical, but a certain type of physical, and that's the physical that can't be reasoned with. Mm. And so stuff like Jaws, mm. you can't reason with a shark. Yeah. Uh, you can't, nor can you reason with somebody like Michael Myers mm-hmm. or Jason Voorhees or Leatherface. It should be noted that uh, they're all wearing masks. Like mm-hmm. they are not given a human face, and thus they do not seem like they, they don't experience human emotion mm-hmm. the way we do, and thus you cannot make an appeal to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, uh, you know, zombies kind of get me as well. Um, I, I'm not necessarily, I'm not really scared of any of these in my everyday life, but, um, but the idea of zombies just being these shambling things, I mean, they're basically animals if you look at it yeah. a certain way. And uh, whereas in The Guest, The Hitcher, uh, the stepfather, the characters might be crazy and they might be mostly unstoppable, but they have a face mm-hmm. and you can talk to them and they can talk back. And in my, in my view, that makes it more of a thriller than a horror movie. I mm-hmm. never felt myself scared when watching the guest. I was, I was on the edge of my seat mm-hmm. like a thriller will, will do. But, uh, but yeah, I was never frightened. Yeah. Um, and I never, you know, when you watch your next, for example, and you come home, you find yourself, if it's dark, you find mm-hmm. yourself thinking of like, okay, where are all the places that these, that the invaders hid, Yeah, you know, whereas I never thought of anything like that with the guests. Yeah. Yeah. Me so, either. um, but yeah, uh, as far as the things that, that I liked about it, I think the acting is top notch all around. I wish I was more familiar with the lead actor dan stevens who yeah. played who plays david the the guest of the mm-hmm. title um i'd never seen him in anything else before i went to see the film with my wife who is a downton abbey fan mm. and apparently he pay, he played a big role in that he is apparently british yeah um and she said he's very he's very different yeah um i think i know because i've seen a little bit over megan's shoulder basically but uh, I think I know which one he is and he's like a, you know, the, the type of person you expect to be in yeah, yeah. something like down Abbey. He's yeah. a very refined character. He's like the young dashing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very, it's just very interesting to see him. And cause I had heard oddly enough before I knew anything about this movie, Jen had told me about Dan Stevens leaving the show to pursue other opportunities. Hmm. Um, and this isn't where you would have thought he would have go. He was on, is it? But it, in a way it makes sense. Yeah. Like, uh, the first place my mind went when it came to the, the difference between the two was Woody Harrelson. Woody mm-hmm. Harrelson leaves cheers and does natural born killers, <laughs> people versus Larry Flint, like all these very adult things. He goes very much in the other direction. Yeah. Uh, one could say overcorrects so that the idea of 
you know, sweet natured, dim witted Woody from Cheers, that's gone. Yeah. That is banished from your mind. Mm-hmm. And so this is feels like that. I mean, the character, there are moments where he feels like somebody in a Downton Abbey in that he's very polite and mm-hmm. he's again he's he's this dashing he's type. still like yeah dashing and uh and uh I don't know affable maybe yeah but he does but he does a very a very nice subtle southern slash midwestern accent and uh any but he also just seems you know when I think of those characters from Gosford Park and rules of the game and Downton Abbey and stuff mm. uh, I think of people that are not remarkably capable um, <laughs> on their own. And, uh, this character is, we come to f- realize he's remarkably capable. Yeah, very quickly. We come to realize he is capable and yeah. can be dangerous when he wants to be. Indeed. And so, uh, so this character, again, having not seen any Downton Abbey, uh, based on Jen's reaction and, and the reaction of, of other people that have seen both, uh, it's, it's, in many ways, night and day. You just would not imagine this character from Downton Abbey in this film. So I thought he did a great job. The rest of the cast, you know, it's not necessarily a name cast unless you are a, a fan of character actors like myself. Uh, so, like, you get a Leland Orser in there and um, and a uh, uh, Sheila Kelly that I've seen around and Lance Reddick. So, uh, but everybody does a really great job. Uh, now, how would you say... Is it Micah or Maka Monroe? I don't know. It's M-A-I-K-A. So I'm not really sure how you pronounce that. But yeah. she really, if there is a lead of the film, in theory, it's this character, David, but not really. If you think mm-hmm. in terms of an arc, mm-hmm. uh, David doesn't change. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, the character Anna, she does. So she's sort of our, our hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and... She's the only one that is it. And one of the other things, and this, in almost any movie of any genre, few things frustrate me more. And I don't mean artistically. I mean, like, I get pulled in and nothing frustrates me more than somebody who thinks one way and nobody believes him oh, or yeah. her. And I just think like, oh, that, that, that's so stressful. Yeah, like a... Uh... <clears throat> Like an invasion of the body snatchers exactly, yeah. or yeah, something like that where, or that uh, twilight zone where there's the, with, I think it's William Shatner with the gremlin on the wing or whatever, oh, yeah, the yeah, plane yeah. <laughs> and just, and no one will believe no one will you. Believe him. Oh, it's so it's, uh, yeah. And of course you're supposed to feel that, but man, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. And yeah. And I like the way that this one uses that. Yeah. Um, to its, to its, uh, to its, advantage what, what's the word i'm thinking of to its advantage in terms of suspense yeah, yeah. i'm trying to say um because it, it keeps like every time you you think like oh well she can every time you think of what her options are mm. it it cuts them off yeah oh which which you know that there is a, certainly a horror element to that but yeah. there's a lot of overlap between horror and thriller as yeah. far as uh, you know devices and such mm-hmm. um but yeah, and I'm trying to think of, of other things that I can comment on. I think it's very sharply written. As far as how it's directed, uh, specifically in terms of action and suspense, like you said, the idea of looking all, at all these different avenues for escape or for relief, and they just keep getting closed off one mm-hmm. after another. Um, I do like that uh, depending on which character you're following, either Anna or David, the violence is much more different. 
Um, Hmm. When it's just him, when he is doing something, uh, there's a a matter of fact quality to it. Kind of a military efficiency. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, the character's a military man, so right. it makes sense. Um, and it's very cold, mm-hmm. um, which fits with the character. And, and that's sort of what reminds me, one of the things that reminds me of the Terminator. It's just, he has this thing to do and he will do it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when it's from her point of view, it tends to be much more chaotic because she's, it's this idea of like, she's out of her depth. She's just barely keeping up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I like that. I like the, the shifting perspective. Um, and so I'm trying to think, uh, of anything else really notable that I like, Oh, it's also kind of funny at times. Um, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's going to be a hallmark of, uh, Simon Barrett and Adam Wingard. Yeah. I think they know how to make a movie that's both exciting and suspenseful, but is also fun. And yeah. it's not, it's never too, uh, too dark and serious yeah. even when it is dark and even when it is creepy it's like they they want you to be having fun at the movies and i think they're succeeding in that and that's rare for for a horror suspense these days i yeah. mean i feel like you know you, you get movies that can be called torture porn you get this you get saw and then you get mm-hmm. hostile and you get you know uh, even stuff like paranormal activity where where it's still it's still fun and that those movies aren't meant to be taken remarkably seriously, but there's still a serious tone. You're still, yeah. you're still meant to have like a straight face. Whereas, um, I don't know when I think of some of my favorite horror movies, um, I think of something that is just, it feels like uh, there's a cliche thing to say, but it feels like a ride that you're on Yeah, and there are thrills and chills and, you know, and fun and excitement and all mm-hmm. that. And this feels like that. It feels like a, a nice breath of fresh air compared to a lot of the other horror that's out there right now. Yeah. Um, so that, so those are some of the things that I responded to. Is there anything that you can think of, or would you like to elaborate on some of the stuff that I've said that you responded to? You know, one thing that is a weird thing that I responded to is, is the, uh, the art direction. I feel mm-hmm. like, because I, I feel like that was one of the ways that it connected with that era of the maybe late seventies, maybe early eighties. Like if you think about it, the, the house that the Peterson family lives in Mm -hmm. seems very out of date. If if you were to walk into it today, you'd think this person's stuck in like 1982, Mm. but within the context of the movie, it just makes sense. And so it feels like, I don't know. I feel like it really puts you in that, uh, it puts you in that world and that era without actually needing to take place in that era. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Because I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's meant to take place. In, it's not a period piece. It's not meant to take place in the eighties. Yeah, I mean, um, people have cell phones. Yeah, and exactly. Stuff, so, and some of the plot elements that come up feel very, very modern or very. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Seem seem to maybe technologically or or politically or socially advanced or something like that to seem yeah. like it takes place in the eighties. Um, but it, it still is appealing to that style, and I think it does it without it seeming. I, I feel like I've seen movies or can imagine movies at least where that they try and do that and it doesn't fit. Well, I think what it one of the things that it comes down to is so it's a reference, you know, it's a throwback to the '80s. And when I think of '80s in this case, horror, um, there was always a certain degree of I'm reluctant to say the word minimalism, but. I'll say stripped down. Everything was stripped down to its essence. Mm. Um, it wasn't merely a cabin. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, Oh, a cabin of the time. It was meant to be the essence of a cabin in the woods, not unlike in the film cabin in the woods. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
so that it felt generic. It felt like you could be anywhere. You don't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, at Crystal Lake. It could be any lake. Mm-hmm. And so it does feel like their house is the essence of a Midwestern house. They mm-hmm. go to a bar. It's the essence of a bar. Yeah. Um, the school. Looks, the school. Absolutely. Same thing. Um, and just, yeah, because, and then even the, the characters, the way he's, cause, uh, Dan Stevens and the character of David, like he's in good shape, he's good looking and, but there's also a generic quality to him mm-hmm. from his name, just simply being David mm-hmm. as opposed to something n- remarkably memorable. Um, and just the way he carries himself, the clothes he wears, everything about almost everything about the film has a generic quality to it. Um, I think, I don't remember if it takes place anywhere specifically like Oklahoma or something like that. Shoot. If I could think of it, they, they do say the name of the town a lot and you see it places, but I, I don't remember if it's supposed to be in a particular place. Yeah. And so it certainly just, I'll say it does feel very middle America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe even, South, you could say maybe Texas. I could see it being like a Kansas or somewhere yeah. too. Yeah, it, it's not California. It's no. not East Coast or anything no. like that. And so, um, it's where. Well, frankly, one of the things that needs to be it needs to be a place where people maybe are a bit more trusting, right? Um, and you know, and that's the thing is is unlike again, I'm going back to horror. This is not a horror movie. Uh, this is a thriller, and in a thriller, in a horror movie. The victims are disposable. You don't care. In a th- in in a thriller, um, you find that you actually do care about the victims, and I do find myself caring about the Peterson family. They're not perfect, um, but we certainly feel like whatever what what eventually comes to happen to them, they certainly don't deserve this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think some of it has to do with the fact that they're just they're decent people living a life that is meant to maybe evoke a, the, a life that many of us have lived. You know, mm-hmm. my mom yeah. lives in Missouri mm-hmm. in uh, a house that's a bit nicer than that, but still, you know, lives in Nixon, Missouri, a decent place where you want to try and help people around you. And, mm-hmm. and something like this, well, admittedly something like this probably wouldn't happen, but, uh, but yeah, it feels like that. Um, and I think that is a function of a number of things, but the art direction, I think you're correct is, yeah. is it's very specific. It's in its lack of specificity. Yes. And I love things like that, especially like, like talking about, and I, like I said, I can't remember the name of the town, but you, you see it around a lot and you see it in like the posters at the school and like you see them, you know, the generic kind of school mascot and it's, yeah. it's just, it's just uh, uh, believable enough for you to accept it, but just kind of generic enough for it to, to for you to to be able to tell that they're trying to do a general appeal. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's and almost like a joke, but it's not a joke. You know, it's hard to it's hard to say exactly what it is, and I like it. I like what they're doing with it. Which speaks to what I was saying with the family is that if this were a film that were meant to merely be a genre exercise, then 
it would be very tongue-in-cheek and winking at you the whole time, and I wouldn't feel personally invested, but right. I do feel personally invested. It would, it would probably do more to sub, to distance you from those characters right. and really point out, they're like, oh, this dad seems like he's okay, but really he's a drunk and he does yeah. this and that. And there are elements of that in these characters, yes. but not in that kind of way, not in a way that is putting down these characters, but that's just showing them as normal, yeah. kind of regular people who have their problems. Yeah, I mean... And frankly, I mean, we are introduced to them as a family that lost their oldest son, you know, uh, while he's fighting overseas and just they're still dealing with that. And so by having it be that immediately we feel for them, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and so the film really works hard. It's it really walks this this fine line and manages to succeed in that it is a fun thriller that's action-packed and we enjoy the action there are a lot of laughs and we laugh mm-hmm. but we still have a for me a heartfelt connection to the family yeah. and at no point when he you know when things happen to the family at no point do i think awesome no yeah there's still there's still real peril there, there's still real stakes yeah. and there's still real uh tragedy is probably a strong word but it's not something not far in that off. direction. I yeah. think there's a better word for it that I can't come up with at the moment. And even when stuff happens to other characters that aren't quite as seemingly innocent as the family, even I'm just like, yeah, these guys don't really deserve it either. You <laughs> yeah. know? Um, so it's a, uh, it's a real, it, it walks a tightrope. And one of the things that I, that I was on the fence about, and I don't, I, I, I want to be very vague here. When did it, when David's background is revealed and I will leave it at that. Hmm. When his background is revealed, my first thought is, what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? Why? This is so out of left field. But then I realized, well, the whole movie is out of left field in yeah. a way. And what's more is there's something that film has been doing lately. And I I go back and forth on it. I think it all, all depends on how they do it. And what, in some cases, it's this idea of, the film itself acknowledging that it doesn't make a great deal of sense, but that's okay. Right. And sometimes I feel like, um, okay, you're just kind of giving yourself a pass mm-hmm. here. Um, but in other cases, when a film know when a film knows that it is silly, uh, in some ways, and it says, look, we all know this is silly. Don't focus on that. Focus on the characters that you've come to know. Focus on the tone that we've set. If you just focus on these things, you don't need to worry about anything else. And this film very much has that. Yeah. I, there's even a, there's a part where the, uh, a character says something like, like, uh, it doesn't need to make sense or something like that. I remember <laughs> you, you really seized on that when you saw it. Shoot, I can't remember that now. But yeah, uh, somebody, uh, David is trying to explain something to somebody and, uh, and someone says like, that doesn't make any sense. And I think he says like, it doesn't matter or something <laughs> yeah. like that. And so, uh, so I appreciated that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we move on to, uh, sort of the thematic discussion, uh, is there anything else that you can think of that you really liked or, or something that you would recommend to people or maybe mm-hmm. a warning of some kind <laughs> that really covers a lot of ground? Yeah. Um, I guess I, I'm saying here, you take it. I'm going to go to the bathroom. <laughs> my warning is if you go there and you're thirsty, you should get a drink because otherwise you'll just be sitting in the movie thirsty the whole time. And who wants that? Not me. Um, yeah, good to go. 
Okay, thank you. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I, I think we've talked about most of the stuff that I liked about it. Um, I'm trying to remember, it, is it rated R? Oh, yes. Okay. Is it mainly for language? Language and violence. I mean, it's not gory violence, but it's yeah. still, I mean, there's still some blood in there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't remember there being a whole lot of that. I feel like it has more of a general appeal than a lot of movies like this could, because I don't feel yeah. like there are a lot of horrible gore moments or anything that's really kind of... Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like the things that these types of movies are generally rated R for or not, there's not a lot of that in here. Yeah. But um, but I, I could be wrong about that. I, I don't remember the language in it. There could be a lot more than I remember. Um, but uh, but yeah, I feel like it's a it's a fun... It's a fun Halloween film. Yeah. It's, it's a uh, romp. It is a romp. I don't know if I'd go that far, but... It's not a romp. Um, <laughs> yeah, so let's uh, let's move on, and I think I'll... Um, yeah, I think we'll get into some of the, some of the, the themes here first. So, uh, when we talked about Coraline, there's going to be a lot of overlap thematically between this and Coraline, which I know you wouldn't necessarily think. Um, but one thing that you find yourself asking is why would this family bring this guy in, just embrace him as fully as they do. And I think it's because what he represents, like I said, there's a generic quality to him, which means that every member of the family can imprint their own need onto Mm -hmm. him. Yeah. Um, And this is a family that has need Mm -hmm. right now. There is a, a void in their life. Yeah, a very specific void that he yes. almost exactly fits. Yes, and where he doesn't immediately fit, he goes out of his way to make sure he does. Yeah. Um, and so uh, to go person by person, uh, we'll go with the parents first. They lost their son, you know, and that's a, a, a huge thing. And then along comes this guy who is not merely their son's age, nor is he merely um, uh, a soldier, but he actually knew their son. And it's like, okay, so there's a lot of things going on there. But on top of that, he also delivers a message from their son. So he had a specific connection. And so by latching on to him, it's not merely that they have a sort of replacement son, but they also have a link mm-hmm. to to their son. It's almost yeah. like if you know, if you had a loved one who died and then uh you know, they said their last words to this person. You you might talk. You might kind of latch onto that person. It's one of the things that the movie Margaret is about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, so those are the parents. Uh, very understandable uh, connection there. Uh, we'll get to Anna in a moment. But the the youngest son, Luke, he sort of he's bullied at school. Um, he doesn't have a lot of self confidence. Uh, but then um, David comes along and he fights for the kid. He doesn't merely teach him how to fight. He fights for him. Yeah. And that's something that can be very – it can just be invaluable to feel like you have a, an ally on your side, a powerful mm-hmm. ally. And what's interesting is that as things start coming out about David, Luke stands by him. But it should be noted, and I'm I'm reluctant to say this, he stands by him with eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. You know, other other characters stand by him and they don't necessarily believe some of the things that are being said about him. Luke entertains the notion, but still, you know, sort of weighs his options and says, mm-hmm. I'd rather have this guy 
in my life than not. Yeah. Even if he is these things. Yeah. Even if he's dangerous, you know, whatever. And so, and, and frankly, anytime we see David and Luke together in which, uh, David is helping him out with something, those scenes take on an element of almost wish fulfillment, um, in that those elements are, those scenes are specifically awesome. We yeah. see them the way Luke would see them. Right, right. It's everything that like a young teenage boy who's not cool would want. It's yeah. like someone who is obviously cool, who has the strength, the strength to stand up to those people that the kid doesn't have the strength to stand up to. Right. Can basically... Uh, can do a lot of things to make him into the person that he wishes he was. Yeah. And so that's, that's an interesting development. And then lastly, you know, so what we're basically talking, okay. So the parents see a son, the youngest uh, boy sees, uh, frankly, like an older brother type. Kind of, I think even more than that, kind of like certainly more. Yes. Kind of like a, I'm trying to think of a better comparison. Maybe the ideal older brother would be good. Um, Anna, however, does not see a brother in David. She sees a potential romantic interest, even though I believe she has a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Her boyfriend's kind of a scumbag and uh, not horribly. He doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. But, he, but he's a ne'er-do-well, yeah. for sure. And uh, his parents don't like him and all that. David comes along and, you know, and it's interesting. They see him as sort of a son, but they also see perhaps whether they express it or not, they see a potential like, oh, well. David and Anna could get together and then, then it's like, he really would be my, our, our son. Um, so there's some interesting stuff there. Um, and I think she does start to see him. There are definitely some scenes where she feels attracted to him right. and wants to draw close to him. And he's just this image of stability. Right. And it's, it's, I think their, their relationship is the most interesting in the movie because she, she goes back and forth between being drawn in. A lot of this happens even without any dialogue mm-hmm. with you seeing, her seeing a benefit in him yeah. or you're seeing her drawn to him, but then something, something's always just not right. That tends yeah. to then push her back away again. And she's this, uh, she goes through this cycle of kind of moving back and forth towards him and then away from him. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, yeah, there are a lot of, there are a lot of scenes between the two, uh, that are really, that just sort of crackle with energy, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, both actors really navigate those waters very well. Yeah. And it's so often that I feel like almost every scene in the movie until, you know, closer to the end when you know a little bit more of what's going on. But, uh, so many of them f- just feel like there's something going on under the surface. Yeah. Even when there's not. So there's this sense, there's this sense almost throughout the movie that there's, something else going on right which i kind of like even in even in scenes where david's just being polite to somebody yeah like you get a sense that what there's something else there yeah and it's it's uh it's intangible and you can't really describe it and nobody knows why yeah. but then anna has a sense of it and i think that's part of the reason that that uh they have that weird back and forth um which i think is a hard thing to achieve in a film is to to create a sense that there's something else there without ever saying it. Yeah. And I think some of that comes, I think some of that, maybe even a good portion of it is uh, a function of Dan Stevens performance because he needs to suggest that he's the type of person that people wouldn't question, but would just accept. Right. While also telegraphing to us that, 
okay, there's something going on here. And maybe it's maybe it's just part of it. Maybe part of it is just that we as viewers see him and, and say this is too good to be true. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad that you said that. Well done, Josh. That brings us into our theme. Uh, so like I said, uh, Last the last episode we talked about Coraline and the world was too good to be true, mm-hmm. um, and in this case, it's not the world. It's one person who's too good to be true. He is everything to everybody. He's this. Um, people are able to just imprint on him what they want, um, and it's because they do that. It's because they they see what they want to see that they do not question things that they probably should have. Hmm. Um, I mean, we, we see the, the dad just a little bit early on when asking like, who is this guy? Why is he in our house? Why is he, he's staying the night? Why is that? Hmm. But then as he sits and talks with David, now admittedly, he's also drinking during that time, but he's talking to him and it just, and you just feel, you see him get more at ease with him mm-hmm. and he's sharing a beer with, Frankly, his son, like yeah. it, it has that quality. And, and to David it. knows how to kind of just reflect with him to yeah. be what he wants to recognize what the dad. We're calling him the dad, but he has a yeah. name, Spencer. Spencer. He's Spencer. Yeah, he's uh, David's reflecting what he wants to hear, yeah. and that uh, that brings down Spencer's guard and brings down his uh, his uh, inhibitions, really. Yeah. Because initially. The mom, Laura, mm-hmm. is uh, is the only one who immediately accepts him. Yeah. Maybe not immediately, but very quickly yeah. accepts him. And the rest of the family is kind of like, who is this guy? What's the deal? Yeah. But um, David is able to do those things to be what people want to see. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm going to try and uh, get to where I'm going without making too big of a leap. Um from a Christian standpoint, uh, I want to talk about the idea of idols, um, the things that we, the things in our lives that are not God that take on ultimate importance uh, sign- or sign- significance, rather. Um, now, in this case, David is not an idol. David is merely he's uh, a means to yeah, the idols. Yeah, he's an avenue. Yeah, um, and so, and that's the thing is none of these none of the idols for the family are bad. You know, Luke, the, the younger son, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be left alone. And, (laughs) and there's nothing wrong with feeling bad that your, that your son has died. And Mm -hmm. on Anna's part, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be in a relationship with somebody that is upstanding and seems to really care what you have to say and really uh, pay attention to you. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with any of these, yeah. but they're so focused on that. And probably because of their grief, you know, mm-hmm. they've lost a thing mm-hmm. and it's a big thing and they feel terrible about it. And that maybe blinds them a little bit mm-hmm. to what is to us very obvious. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it's, it's a very, I feel like he's a, he's such a direct avenue to those, to those <laughs> idols too, because he in most cases is able to give give people the opposite of of uh, the opposite of whatever the problem they're having is. Right. So if there's a problem that's consuming your life, and then this guy shows up and says, "I, I can I can fix that. That can be gone." Yeah. That 
that's something most of us would jump at. And I think it's understandable the reason why. Very, yeah, very much so. And I mean, in some cases, like in the case of Spencer, the dad, um, you know, it's not merely that he wants a son, but also David pays attention to uh, Spencer's work situation. Yeah, his trouble he at work. He feels very frustrated. And David, without even taking credit for it, he does something that allows Spencer's work situation to get better. Mm -hmm. And so even though Spencer doesn't point to David and say he made this better, it's more just now things are positively associated with this guy being here. Yeah. Um, And so, so we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about feeling an emptiness in your life. And then just looking for the thing that will fill that. Uh, there's a Tom Waits lyric. I'm sure I've quoted on here before. Uh, it's from a song called Come On Up to the House. and says, the only things that you can see, or maybe the only thing that you can see is all that you lack. Um, and uh, that's something that resonates a great deal with me. I often feel like I, de- I define myself more by what I'm not than what I am. Uh, and it's very uh, depressing and sad. Um, and so certain things about this and the companion film really resonate with me. And I often wonder, you know, it's easy when you're the viewer to sit back and, and look and say, oh, okay, well, certainly I wouldn't be like that. But when you're in the midst of it, if somebody comes along and says, hey, you know, this thing that you've been striving for and you're not getting, here you go. Would you just accept it? Now, most of us would. And especially if there seems to be no strings attached, but you know, in the case of David, there is something a bit odd about him that I think the many of the characters are willfully ignoring mm-hmm. because he's offering this thing. Yeah. Cause I think there are hints that come up later that there might be something wrong. Yeah. And I feel like most of them ignore it. Uh, most so in the case of Luke. Yeah. Uh, who, as you mentioned earlier, does a lot of this stuff with eyes wide open. And so I want to, uh, with that idea of somebody comes along and says, here, this is what you get. This is what you want. Here you, here you you have it. Uh, I will move us into the companion film, which is needful things directed by Fraser. It's F R A S E R. So it's, I don't know if it's Fraser, but I'll say Fraser Clark Heston, son of Charlton Heston, written by W. Is that true? Yeah, I didn't know that. Written by W. D. Richter and based on the book by Stephen King. Uh, Needful Things takes place. If I had to guess, I don't remember Castle Rock. Probably okay. Uh, like in it, Maine. It takes place in Maine. Yeah, and so it's just about this small town that uh, an old man named Leland Gaunt, which is a name I love. He rolls into town, sets up a shop called Needful Things, and it's just a little knick-knack store, antiques, whatever you want it to be. And people walk in, and he always seems to have the exact physical thing that a person wants. Mm -hmm. Uh, In some cases, you know, there's this one guy who his best years are behind him. He was a, you know, he was great in high school, big uh, football football star, baseball star. star, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but those days are behind him and he walks in and lo and behold, there's like his letter jacket Yeah, and he wants it so bad. And Leland says, just take it. It's no problem. It doesn't even, doesn't even charge him if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 
Um, and there's and there's a, a young kid who uh, sees a, a Mickey Mantle baseball card that's worth a lot of money, but he also it's just it's this thing that he thinks will make him happy. Yeah, every and, and it's a Mickey Mantle baseball card that's signed to him. Yes, yes. Now, and that's the thing is, you know, when we watch this, we think. Isn't it a little weird that this guy's letter jacket would be there? And there's no way he could have that. Yeah. Um, but of course, these characters are are blind to it because, again, this is for them. If somebody, you know, in thinking about this episode, uh, you can't help but think about, okay, well, what are the things in my life that I, what are the carrots mm-hmm. that I'm chasing mm-hmm. that I'll never, that I may never get. Uh, and maybe I will, who knows, but what's the thing that is driving me? Mm-hmm. Um, and if somebody literally said, here you go, here's the carrot, I'd probably accept it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there's an, I have, I feel like I have a bunch. I, I think thinking about this has caused me to realize that there are, uh, I have a number of idols in my life. One of them, as I've said, is, uh, approval and acceptance of everyone in the world. Uh, that's, I don't think I'll get that one. And you know what? Then along those lines, I start to think like, is there anybody in the world that is just universally loved? Like there's no one that would ever speak ill of this person. It's hard Mm. to say. I feel like, um, like mother Teresa, maybe one mother Teresa, maybe Um, like Larry King, Larry (laughs) King. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, he's a national treasure. Of course. Um, and then I was thinking like, okay, well what about, um, what about like Martin Luther King? Nobody would say anything. And I was like, oh, racists. They're racists. <laughs> he he was murdered, that. if you remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then I thought, okay, all right. So who is somebody that racist would like that? And I just, and the closest I got was Tom Hanks. Um, <laughs> I don't know of anybody that doesn't like Tom Hanks. And I cannot imagine somebody not liking Even him. racists. Like Even Tom racists. Hanks. But then I thought like, oh, shoot. What about like, like, uh like radical Islamists or like the yeah, people in ISIS. Like him. I bet they don't like him. Yeah. And then, and so that's when I, that's when I was like, well, certainly I'm not going to be that guy. If Tom Hanks can't be that guy, <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Um, well, what you needed to do first is just start appealing to all radical groups. Okay. Um, that shouldn't be a problem. Find out a platform that they can all agree with yeah. and just be like, Hey, craziness. And they're like, Hey, I like that. That's, that's fun. Um, but yeah, so that's that's one that, of course, is is silly in a way. But uh, you know, if I'm being honest, one of the things that uh, that really, and I, I'm sure I've said, I think I said this in my uh, testimony episode. Um, like, I've never been somebody that's like in shape physically. I'm not, you know, like monstrous. I'm not. Hor- I'm not like morbidly obese or anything. I'm just merely overweight and have been for a good portion of my life. And I always like, you know, when people when people say like. Hey, if you, you know, if a genie came along and gave you three wishes, what would your first wish be? Mine would always be a better body always. Hmm. And more specific. And then if I get more specific, it's that I would enjoy the things that can give you a better body. Like I hate all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I go to the gym and I, and I have to, I have to make sure I've got the right podcast because not all of them will distract me from what I'm doing as Mm -hmm. thoroughly as I need. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if I do, if I don't calculate it right, and and the episode is over, but I still have like twenty minutes left, I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> it's like, should I just go home? No, oh, I hate this. Uh, but that's but if somebody came along, and it's hard to it's hard to do. But if somebody came along and said, hey, 
If I walk into the shop Needful Things and Leland Gaunt says, better body, the kind that you've always wanted. Boy, I feel like I'd have a hard time saying no. Mm-hmm. And for some, it could be finance, not not necessarily fi- uh, professional success. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it could be any number of things. And so, what I want to put out to you, the listener, and even you, Josh, is me? what even is me? even you, buddy? I'm wow. I'm bringing you in. Uh, you don't necessarily have to answer, but really, really think about this thing and think: what is the thing that I feel like if I got this? I would be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think everybody probably has something. Yeah. You know, I mean, certainly people, uh, you know, uh, certainly there are some Christians I know that probably do a, can do a better job of prioritizing. They know that thing is there, but they also know that God is there. Mm-hmm. And so they try to keep things in proportion. I try to do that. Sometimes I do better than, you know, sometimes I do better, sometimes I do worse. Mm-hmm. And so uh, – now, Needful Things is not that great of a movie, um, and from what I gather, uh, if you've read the book, you may not like the movie. Yeah. It's probably one of those things where, like, people who are big fans of Stephen King, like, maybe this is one that they love. And if, there, if there's any book that you love and you feel like a movie is made of it that's okay, yeah, it's never good enough. Like, like I feel like The Road wasn't a bad movie. Yeah. But I had read the book and liked it a lot, and I felt like the movie just wasn't as good. Yeah. That's – it's it's really difficult with adaptation. I know we've, we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, and I know you guys have talked about it on Battleship Retention before, but um, there's – the the responsibility of a film to live up to a book is, a, is kind of a weird – uh, a weird thing to, to – a weird feeling that we all have kind of different – opinions about yeah and i think for me one of the things is it doesn't have to do the same things it can even have a different plot but i feel like it has to uh like just strike some of the same chords yeah it has it has to do it has to do the things that i like it when the book does those things right it doesn't and, have to do them the same way. Right. Um, yeah, it's, I, I agree with you. I've read LA confidential and I've seen the movie very different. The book is way more complex and that is a movie that's fairly complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, I'll say this, the book makes it seem like the, the world of Los Angeles in this, uh, in this time is even dirtier and more corrupt. Mm. Um, but they both strike that tone of just, these tragic characters that meant well at one point and now they have gone very far afield. Right. So they both strike that thing. Um, even though, and you know, the book, uh, jaws is, is very different, um, from the, uh, movie and the book, there's not even a shark. Um, (laughs) that's a joke of course. Uh, but it's very, it's very different, but of course the tone is still the same. So, um, so that, that all, that's all to say, like if you had read this book and, it's very possible that there could be the things that you love about this book yeah. don't really come through in the movie, and neither of us can say because neither of us have read the book. Right, and Stephen King is hard to adapt. He's one that – it doesn't seem like it should be that hard to adapt, and I haven't read really – I think I've read maybe a short story and listened to part of an audio book, so I'm not, okay. I'm not one who's familiar with his work, but um, my wife is, and she's talked about it before, and there's – a lot of it is is this kind of sense of – uh, of eeriness yeah 
which I think is something you can do in a film. And I feel like there's a lot of films that do that well. Yeah. So it surprises me that there aren't more adaptations of his that, that people who are fans of his books really latch on to. Um, some of the best adaptations, maybe the best adaptations are the ones that aren't horrific. Like Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile. Those yeah. are the ones that people say, oh, those work really well. Yeah. But if something needs to be scary, uh, it doesn't, like, you know, I read Cujo and mm. I saw the movie Cujo. It's not scary. <laughs> the book is scary. Yeah. Um, and I've heard the same about The Stand and Needful Things and mm-hmm. any of these other things. Um, and then, of course, there's The Shining, which I think is a fairly effective film. I don't find it scary. Yeah. But um, I find it scary, and I think that's a great movie. But the people who like the book say it's like yeah. it's totally different, and it doesn't do what the book does. So, yeah. you know. So, yeah, it's it's just very strange. And I, and I try to imagine if I were a fan of Needful Things, and I heard that Charlton Heston's son was directing, <laughs> I might think, okay, that seems like a wasted opportunity. Uh, it seems like a, somebody's vanity project. Maybe, uh, you know, were this not Charlton Heston's son, maybe he wouldn't get the part. Uh, maybe he wouldn't uh, get the job. Mm. Um, but if I remember correctly, and it's a film I've seen a couple of times, it's still fairly... Uh, you know, there's still some nice moody qualities to it. And, uh, and at times, and, and I seem to recall it having kind of a good sense of humor. Yeah. Um, I think there's some, even as terrible things are happening, like it almost has a almost farcical element to it. Mm. Um, because one of the things that happens is that Leland Gaunt, he will give these people these things, uh, and they, he won't charge them, but he will say, if you just do this one thing for me, then it's paid. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the thing is small. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's often small. It's just, oh, uh, slash this person's tires. And it's a person maybe you don't even know. Mm-hmm. But that person will then blame somebody else. And then it starts. So the idea is that Leland Gaunt comes to town and just causes absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. Because he is the devil. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers, I guess. Um, you, you pick up on it pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, not the least, you know, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that uh, he makes a lot of uh, puns, uh, a lot of like hell puns, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a I thought it was a pretty effective little film. Do you want to talk about it just a little bit because you saw it for the first time? Yeah, recently. I just saw it recently. Um, I mean, one thing that we didn't mention yet is that uh, Max von Sydow plays leland gaunt yeah and he's an actor that i love and i think he's i think he's great in everything and i think he's great in this um he he has a he's an actor that has a uh, it's weird it's a it's kind of a it can be kind of a silent presence but it's very powerful Mm -hmm. like i think of him as an actor that has a lot of uh, of power to him but normally actors that i would describe that way would be someone like a uh, Toshiro Mifune or somebody. And I think I said the same thing about, um, Klaus Kinski when yes. we were talking about something. Uh, Nosferatu. About? Nosferatu. That's what it was. Um, but those are both actors who are, show a lot of energy and are very big and everything like that. And I think, I feel like Max von Sydow is that, but in a different way. It is worth noting that he, one of the movies he was nominated for was extremely loud and incredibly close in which his character does not speak. Yeah. So, yeah, so he's a he's a fantastic actor, and I think he's I think he's great in this. Um, I think uh, it's no, it was funny. I was thinking there are some elements that made this even a better companion film than I realized because it is a very 
some of the stuff we were talking about about the small town mm-hmm. and the specificity of the small town is definitely still here. Yeah. I think when I think there's a sign uh, on the entrance to the town that says something like "a nice place to live." Yeah, and I thought, had that same thought when we were talking about the town of uh, the, the in which the guest takes place. Yeah, so that's here too, and I like that. Um, I think if you have any familiarity with Stephen King, it might feel a little, that part of it might feel a little bit tired because it always is the same type of place, if not the exact same place. Yeah. Um, and so there's kind of this like, okay, yeah, it's a quaint new England town. You sort of know that that's what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, so I, I can see that being a complaint. Um, but I do like I do like it that it's specific and it's small and everybody knows everybody and that that lends itself to this type of story too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of the other main thoughts I had about it. Some of the problems I have with it, and I, I thought it was generally a, not a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some things with the pacing that don't necessarily work. Um, I, th- I feel like there's moments when we jump too quickly into supposed to be knowing what's going on with these, some, some of these characters or like a, a conflict seems to, to drum itself up too quickly. Yeah. Um, and I think it doesn't do a great job of setting up exactly what Leland is. Leland Gaunt is doing. It does. It, the first example is very clear. The, the kid comes in, he's looking for the, the baseball card. Yeah. Leland says, Oh, I think I have it. And he pulls it out and sure enough, he does. And it's signed to him. So you're like, okay, there's something else going on here. Yeah. And then he asks for like 25 cents for it, but just do me a little little favor. Yeah. So you know that that's kind of what's happening, but I feel like you don't see enough of that with other people. Really? You see them getting the things and you see what the things mean to them. And then eventually you realize that they are, you know, they're being asked to do some other little favors for him. But I feel like some of the pieces you have to put together yourself a little bit in a way that I don't know that you should have to. I remember being okay with that because, uh, and again, you've seen it more recently than, than I have. So maybe it's a little clunkier than I recall. Um, but, uh, I remember liking that in a way it sort of puts you in the same position as the townspeople, just trying to figure out what's happening. You just see that chaos seems to be happening. You're not really sure why. Um, and then it comes it comes into focus what's happening and who is the cause of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and between that and the fact that we see the kid and everything is spelled out for him, mm-hmm. I think we can then assume that this is how it's going for everybody when they come in. Um, so I remember liking that, but again, I haven't seen the movie in probably 10 years. Um, I watched it a lot when I was younger. Yeah. But uh, I feel like there's a lot of scenes where he focuses on what this thing means to the people, but then we just cut away from it and we're like, okay, did, did they make a deal with him? Yeah. Is it, what, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like it, it, no, I don't know. I hate to say like, you could have done this because I feel like that's usually not an effective criticism, but, uh, and just to do it anyway, uh, (laughs) I feel like maybe if, we had seen him finding things for people earlier, but they were just kind of simple things that made more sense that he'd have and then kind of ramped itself yeah. up into more more outlandish things that you wouldn't believe that people would have. And then yeah. 
then you then starting to see a little bit more of him actually making deals with people. I see. So it's so it 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 develops more. Yeah. Okay. So with every new piece of information, we at first it just seems like oh he's a kindly old man with a junk shop that happens to have certain things versions of things that people want. Yeah. But then it becomes more and more specific, and then you hear okay I see what you mean. Because this, the way it is now, I feel like I say that as if they're going to re-edit it. <laughs> the way it is now, um, but, all, you all, you know, <laughs> hey, you could if you, you if could. you want a project someday, maybe. But uh, they they introduce very quickly that he has exactly what you want to a level that's unbelievable. Yeah. He has some kind of supernatural power because I think like he's able to. In the first two people you see in there, he like touches them and seems to be able to know what they're thinking Mm -hmm. and they don't address at all that hey that's weird this guy can seem to know my thoughts or my history yeah and i feel like i want people to to react to that a little bit more to to be unsettled by why was he able to do that even if they're still drawn into it because i think they still could be and still should be Mm -hmm. um anyway that's maybe that's kind of a nitpicky criticism um but uh, there are some things I really I, I liked. Uh, are, do you remember the scene when, um, when the kid has kind of figured it out? Yeah, that's a, that's a really power. Cause that's a good scene. Yeah, between him and Ed Harris, right? Yeah, that's I do. I have a very very specific memory of that scene. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. which like there's just the good performance by that by that kid. He's yeah. been in uh, a number of things since then. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, and it's interesting that he more like before anybody else, the kid gets it. Like, yeah. I mean, he's the first one, but also just he, the writing's on the wall. He mm-hmm. knows what's going on and he knows his own culpability. And yeah. And maybe yeah. there's something pure about childhood that he's less, maybe. he's less able to just kind of forgive himself and move on. Cause he knows he's getting what he wants yeah. as the adults seem to be. Yeah. Yeah, that is a that is a scene that has stuck with me. Uh, even specific lines, yeah. I, again, I haven't seen in well over ten years, uh, and I do, and I remember a number number of the lines mm-hmm. from that scene. Um, yeah, and the I like the acting all around. Ed Harris, uh, I'm a big fan of J T. Walsh. Uh, may he rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, who plays Danforth Keaton the Third, otherwise known as Buster Keaton, <laughs> um, and the, you know, in in a lot of Stephen King books or movies or or what have you um there's sort of the main the the main bad guy but then there's his for lack of a better term his renfield um and uh, that's that's what buster keaton reminded Mm -hmm. me of and played uh wonderfully by jt walsh so so yeah so what we're talking about i mean clearly uh hopefully uh it's it's obvious at this point that both david from the guest and leland gaunt from needful things they're providing people with their idols um and the people and chaos happens because people are getting this thing that they are sure will make them happy. And indeed it does sort of make them happy for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, the things that they're willing to turn a blind eye to, um, or talk themselves into thinking is fine, uh, becomes more and more until it's just complete chaos by the end. Yeah. And part of me wonders if, um, because obviously Stephen King is not a Christian. If mm-hmm. I wonder if the emphasis for him is more on possessions, is more on just having things. 
I think so. Yeah, because I I I feel like the theme either theme really can come through because mm-hmm. it clearly is. I mean, it's it's the same situation with idols. Yeah, and uh, as it is, the way these people treat things is the way that they that people treat idols. Yeah, and maybe Stephen King and you know the writers of this movie and creators of this movie are not thinking of it in terms of that. They're more just thinking in terms of you're putting so much value in possessions, but they're just things, man. Except what I do like is that for some people, because nobody says, you know, what I could really go for is just a giant bag of cash. You know, <laughs> nobody says that. It's all. For 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 many people, it's this thing that reminds them, like for the like the guy with the letter jacket. Yeah, they all. There's nothing inherently kind of value. represent something. Yeah. There's the little glass figurine that the other woman wants yeah. that is, uh, is has a connection with her her bad her bad marriage. Right, and it's just so. If, if it was just people wanting walking in saying, I'd like a, a big uh, bar of gold, please, um, then, the, you know, or I want a nice new car or a big screen TV, then I think you could make an mm-hmm. argument that it's, that it's anti-materialism. But I think the fact that each one just imbues personal value mm-hmm. – to these things that are fairly innocuous. I mean, obviously a, an autographed Mickey Mantle card's pretty valuable, yeah. but the kid doesn't want it for that. He yeah. doesn't want it because it's worth money. He wants it because, Hey, it's, you know, uh, his, his sports idol and all that kind of and thing. And he even talks about having a connection with his father regarding baseball yeah. cards. He says something like me and my dad would love to have something like yeah. that. So there's a, there's a, uh, there's another level of the emotional connection to, to an object like that. Yeah. And just, and I, I have a handful of those things in my life that it's like, there's, there's nothing inherently valuable about them, but they're valuable to me. Yeah, maybe invaluable. Exactly. And so, um, so yeah, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like Stephen King probably knew what, what he was doing. I don't know if he would ever use the word idol. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and but that's what we're going to use. And so there's a number of uh, number of quotes here, uh, and you'll start to notice a theme here. First uh, Corinthians ten fourteen. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And then First John five twenty one. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Which is the last verse in that book? Did you know that? Hmm, no, I didn't. It's very interesting. I don't remember that anyway. I think I've read First John at some point, but yeah, I, I, I have as well. Um, at least that's that's what I think it is. As I was looking it up online, when I clicked next, it just jumped to Second uh, John. Hmm. So I was like, okay, I guess that's the last one. Hmm. Um, but maybe I clicked the wrong next button. Either way, is the last thing of that chapter. It was next lesson. Oh, more than one. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> Psalm 16, verses 4 and 5. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Now, one person that I'm a big fan of is Tim Keller, and he writes a lot about idols. Um, and a lot of the stuff that he's written in some of his sermons have been very convicting for me and helped me to think of idols in, in a different way. Yeah. He's a, for anyone who haven't heard his name, he's a pastor and a Christian writer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he is the pastor of the, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian church in New York. Yeah. Um, so I, this is at the bottom, but I'll jump to it now. Uh, he has a book called counterfeit gods that has to do completely with this. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to, 
if you want to read an entire book of this, uh, that is a book that is very uh, effective. Some I he writes a lot. Uh, one I, I feel like he writes maybe a bit too much because some of his stuff I feel like feels a bit rushed. But this one clearly it's something close to him. This this topic is something close to his heart, and he writes very detailed about it. Gives a lot of examples from his own experience as a pastor, uh, and it's very effective. And so. <clears throat> Here are a couple of uh, a couple of quotes. Uh, when an idol gets a grip on your heart, it spins out a whole set of false definitions of success and failure and happiness and sadness. It redefines reality in terms of itself. Uh, I love that concept. That uh, it's not merely you get this thing or you have this thing, and everything else stays the same. Uh, sooner or later, that becomes you know it's. To go back to the thing that I mentioned, the idea of like, um, like being a, being attractive and being in good shape and all that kind of thing, like, you know, it's not merely that I, you know, you don't think it's like, well, I, you know, I'm overweight, I'm I'm fat, I'm unattractive, but I'm great in other ways. No, if that is your idol, then suddenly it doesn't matter if you're smart, it doesn't matter if you're talented, you're not this, and thus those other things you start to believe that. Other people don't value those other things mm-hmm. because you don't value them. Yeah. So, um, so okay. So we're talking about these idols and how you know. Uh, there's a, a definition here. Uh, as long as you want something very much, especially more than you want God, it is an idol. That's by uh, A. B. Simpson, uh, and that is a gen. That is sort of the general idea of what an idol is. Um, and so. So the idea is okay. Well, let's uh, let's get these idols out of our lives because they because as we pursue them, we might be neglecting something else, and mm-hmm. we might actually be letting something bad into our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you know for myself, almost any idol that I have has led to tremendous envy of people that I feel like have that, hmm. uh, and I become blind to the things that I have, and before I know it, uh, I feel like I'm completely neglecting not neglecting but ignoring the idea of god's blessing in my life yeah um so okay so let's get these out josh get get them them out out. get all these idols out of here ah idols cannot simply be removed this is a quote from tim keller what idols cannot simply be removed josh oh man he wrote that in there too they must be replaced if you only try to uproot them they grow back but they but they can be supplanted by what by God himself, of course. But by God, we do not mean a general belief in his existence. Most people have that, yet their souls are riddled with idols. What we need is a living encounter with God. So uh, here are a number of other uh, verses in regards to this. Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That idea of leaning on your own understanding is something that I have come to really appreciate as I've gotten older. Yeah. Because as you get older, you feel like you, 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 you get it a little bit more, mm-hmm. but then you realize it, it, that fits very well with this idea of defining reality, uh, an idol defining reality in terms of itself. Because again, if you hold something up as the most important thing, the thing that will make you happy, then your understanding is colored by that. And mm-hmm. so if you don't, if if you don't lean on your own understanding, but instead trust in the Lord, then that will throw that will throw the idol in sharp relief, and you'll have a better understanding of that and the value of other things in your life as well. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 9. Oh, here we go. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is, is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So that's, you know, when it comes right down to it, like, the horrible thing about idols, aside from obviously that they uh, distract us from God, is that, you know... <laughs> I'm trying to think of an analogy and I guess we can go with one like this. You know, if you're thirsty and you just drink a bunch of sand, now it's not merely that it's silly to drink sand. It's that you're not drinking water. You're mm-hmm. not drinking the thing that will actually keep you alive. Mm-hmm. So it goes beyond silliness. It goes beyond the wrong priorities. It goes beyond being mistaken. Mm-hmm. It's literally, you're not doing the one thing that actually will give you life. Uh, and every idol again, like there's nothing wrong with, you know, in the case of the guest, there's nothing wrong with mourning your son and wishing he was there. There's nothing wrong with wanting the, your bullies to go away, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, in needful things. Now I do think, you know, the, the kid with the baseball card, there's nothing wrong with mourning the fact that this relationship he had with his dad is not really there anymore. Um, but if that becomes the ultimate thing, then eventually everything else is excluded and you come to realize, oh, that will only take you so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've mentioned, I will mention it apparently every episode, but uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce is an example of people whose idols, though I don't think they ever put it that way, mm-hmm. their idols are keeping them out of heaven because yeah. they have to sacrifice them. And there's a... a- and that book kind of gives a bunch of different examples of different types of things and different ways that those those yeah. keep that those idols essentially keep people away from God yeah. by their own choice. And one of them is a woman whose son died, and yeah. she, the whole reason she wants to go to heaven is to see her son, yeah. not to see God. And they say, and it's not a trick. It, they're not saying, well, unless you want to see you, only, you have to want to see God, otherwise you're not getting in. It's literally. It, you yes your son will is here but he's not going to get you in here you can't come in as a function of him mm-hmm. um and what's more is the more you focus on him here in heaven the more you will make everybody else around you miserable like you did in life yeah um and so it's a really and that's a that's a particularly rough passage to read about yeah um so uh, i will read first peter Five verses six and seven. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, there are a number of verses uh, that have to do with idols. There are a number of verses that have to do with uh, God's grace being sufficient uh, for our lives. Um, and I can't list them all. And they're all way easier said than done. Mm-hmm. But more than anything, what I want you and me and Josh and everybody to get out of this, you know, these, these movies and these verses, um, is that there is something that you are holding up and thinking 
if I had this and there, and it might not be anything bad, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but you view that as the thing that will make you happy. And maybe even though you may not put it in these terms, the thing that will save you, Mm -hmm. save you from what, save you from unhappiness, save you from, you know, any number of loneliness, loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they won't save you because any of these things can go away. It could be a wife. It could be success. It could be uh, a good body. It could be, you know, n- nothing that is bad, but th- all of them can go away. And if you're hinging your success, uh, sorry, your happiness on these things, then what happens if they go away? But of course, God doesn't go away. Um, and that, among other things, is why putting faith in him and defining yourself as a function of his love and his sacrifice, which we'll talk about in the next episode. Um, that's why that is the, it's, that's why, you know, after drinking a lot of sand, if you finally drink water, not only do you, not only are you finally getting what you want, but you suddenly realize I cannot believe I've been drinking sand for so long. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I think we will leave it there. What I will say is that, uh, in order to make up for the week that I was gone, uh, we will be releasing two episodes this week, not on the same day, but come back and probably, let's see, this will be going up Thursday. Come back, let's say Sunday, and you will hear our next episode about Jim Jarmusch's uh, Only Lovers Left Alive. Uh, so yeah, thank you everybody for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you can uh, leave them in the comments section of this post on morethanonelesson.com. But if you want to talk to Josh and I personally, uh, you can email me, Tyler at morethanonelesson.com or Josh, Josh at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh Long at the Josh Long. You can also sign up for our newsletter uh, to find out uh, just to keep updated on uh, new articles and that sort of thing. Uh, And feel free to like us on Facebook. So there's a lot of different ways that you can keep keep up with what's happening on the website and the podcast and all that. So, uh, yes, thank you all for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.